the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, hello, everyone. This is Al Fadi, and I want to welcome you to a very, very exciting uh, new series that we will be titling Sharia, the Muslim Talmud. And, and the title really is intentional, and you will know as we progress, when I say we, myself, and my amazing guest that I will be introducing shortly, uh, the, through the topic of Sharia, which is a topic that is usually, I found it to be um, intimidating to many people. Uh, and also confusing to many of the followers of Islam, uh, because there are many different ways to interpret certain things, even though there is common ways to look at certain aspects of Sharia, which we will also touch on. It is good also to know that when it comes to certain rulings, interpretations, it may vary from one school to the other, regardless of where you stand on your understanding of Sharia. I think this video series, which we don't know yet how long it might take, is going to be extremely powerful, extremely helpful, and extremely educational and informative to both sides, basically, to those who do not know anything about Sharia and those that maybe uh, assume they know, uh, you know a thing or two about Sharia. With me here uh, is a dear brother. His name is Lloyd DeYoung, and I have the honor, of course, to introduce him to you now and also to work with him through this video series. Uh, brother uh, Lloyd, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know how busy you are uh, to really honor us and bless us by walking us through a very important topic. And what I like about it is bringing someone like yourself who at least not uh, a former Muslim like myself, not an Arab like myself, because I want to show people how important it is to learn about these things, even when you're not, for instance, a follower of Islam or an ex-Muslim or even a speaker of the Arabic language, because there are ample sources out there, brother, that talk about this topic. It's just a matter of how you understand it. And that's why you are here with me here today. Thank you, Al-Fadi. The pleasure is really all mine. Could you give people just a brief uh, overview about yourself and what you do? My name is Lloyd de Jong. I'm South African. Moved to Dubai in 2007. I lived in the Middle East for 11 years. I've traveled extensively across the Middle East. I worked in the national defense industry while I was there for, for much of that time, for most of that time. So I was providing, uh, working as a civilian consultant to, to the armed forces, to government, to law enforcement, as well as industry to prevent sabotage to prevent the destruction of critical national infrastructure and, of course, harm to people. So protecting places like critical borders, preventing incursions, also VVIP residences, things like protecting power stations, air force bases, and things like that, designing very long-range, wide-area, multi-million dollar security systems. So I've traveled to all of the hotspots, uh, providing my, my assistance and input. I've spent a lot of time with the military. I was very close with the people of the Middle East because I would go on assignment. I've had relationships with the people and I've met some wonderful people. But I also 
learned a great deal about the culture. And I was also left with a number of questions, which I wanted to study. And I eventually studied them quite deeply. Wonderful. Uh, when it comes to the topic of Sharia, by the way, your name was brought up to my attention multiple times, which tells me that you have devoted a lot of your ministry time to talk about this topic. Um, why Sharia? And how did you come about uh, uh, to, you know, to become uh, kind of like a, an expert in the field, if you wish? It was really a multi, there were more than one factor that got me to look beyond the standard narrative of the Quran and the Hadith, because there was always this confusion that's going in circles. The Quran has one verse that says A, and then another verse that says B, and this was just this going in circles back and forth. And I felt there needed to be some sort of definitive understanding behind all of this. And I decided to do an online counterterrorism course because I was involved in that field, effectively in that field. And at the university, what I learned was that the entire faculty was terrified of discussing when we got to the subject of Islamic terrorism, they refused to discuss Islamic terrorism. We could talk about Buddhist terrorists, Christian terrorists. They were willing to delve into depth and critique and, and so on. But when it got to Islam and ISIS was very, very active at that time, it was like, oh, well, yes, ISIS, um, hmm, not real Muslims. Look, there's a squirrel. Okay, guys, let's move on to Buddhism now. And I found this very, very strange. The, the rector, the dean of the academy refused to engage in discussion with the Muslim Brotherhood. At the time, I was working closely with multiple governments across the Middle East. And the Muslim Brotherhood was definitely an issue and he refused to see them as anything other than benign. Also, there were people in the course that had no attachment to the field. Like One was a housewife, one was a retired accountant, another was a geography student who was 19, and they were policing the chat. And they would complain bitterly the moment anything was said about Islam. And the faculty was terrified of complaints. And eventually, what happened was the Bataclan in Paris. And after that atrocity, I started to look into the books that were being found and the, the libraries that were uncovered that they were, because ISIS was very careful, as well as Al-Qaeda and other groups, they have indoctrination sessions, they teach not only the Quran and the Hadith, but they also teach the Sharia. And there were books that came out that I eventually learned about, I had access to these for the time, and, and I discovered various Sharia manuals, and these were then the orthodox understanding of Islam. And when I introduced this material to the, into the discussion of the group, I was banned the next day. Wow. Well, brother, uh, I just want to tell our viewers that we've decided to do short segments. And so every one of these videos in this long series is going to be an average of 11 to 12 minutes. So having said that, uh, Lloyd, we have about, you know, five to six minutes uh, th that applies to this introductory part, which we can continue in the next one. But what would you sure. like to uh, share with us by way of introduction here? So I can do a very brief introduction, perhaps four slides that we can go through. And just to give people a taste of where we're going to go and just to just as a lead in to the topic. Yes, sir. Please go ahead. Okay. So if you see my slides, well, so I've called this the Muslim Talmud. It's the Sharia and the Fiqh, Islam's sacred law. So these are different terms that all refer effectively to the same thing. There is a distinction between Sharia and Fiqh. However, as a general term, people just call, even the Muslim scholars call it the Sharia. We will work through the distinctions. We will get through that as we go. Right. So let me continue. So Sharia, we need to ask ourselves, is it sacred or is it secret? Because people don't know anything about it. Correct. Really, this is something that is actually kept very, very private. And there are reasons for that. We will uncover those as we go through. But notice in Islam, there's a, there's a very strong push into politics and You'll see here, for instance, in these pictures, you've got the Sharia police zone, Sharia control zone, Sharia, the only option for the UK. Sharia will dominate the world. Sharia is the only solution. Sharia for Britain. Well, Muslims want Sharia, but what is this Sharia? It's not just the Quran. It's not just, they, they don't want Hadith for the world. They want the Sharia. This is a law. So the question is, Islam is a religion of law. Then we need to ask ourselves, what are its laws? Now, 
Muslims say that the Quran is an Arabic Quran, but if we have a look through this, and this is on my uh, YouTube page and my community page, this is a book called The Foreign Words in the Quran by Arthur Jeffrey, and I've made this spreadsheet to describe, well, to show a list of the multiple, and in fact, this is only half of the list. So you'll see that there are numerous, numerous foreign words in the Quran from Syriac, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Ethiopic, and so on and so on. But one should ask oneself, why is there so many Greek words in the Quran? Why so much Hebrew? And the development of the Sharia is part of the reason why Islam has absorbed so many foreign words into its vocabulary, into the Arabic, right? So we'll be looking at some of these words. We're looking at some of the source, especially the Greek and the Hebrew will be relevant to us during this discussion. Now, secrets and weaknesses. Now, it must be noted that, well, let me read this and you guys make up your own mind what this says. If a Quran is being purchased for someone, it is obligatory that the person be Muslim. The same is true of books of Hadith and books containing the words and deeds of the early Muslims. Quran in this context means any work that contains some of the Quran, even a slight amount. This ruling holds for any religious books, even the Tabakat of Shar'ani, a collection of the biographical sketches of Muslims. Now, this is taken from the world's most popular the world's most common Islamic law manual called the Reliance of the Traveler, the Umdat al-Salik. I'll show one more item linked to this. This is in a chapter called R8.0, Holding One's Tongue. It says, do not assist one another in sin and aggression, Quran 5.2. So the Sharia does reference the Quran. But this speaks here of giving directions to wrongdoers. And it says, this includes showing the way to policemen and tyrants when they are going to commit injustice and corruption. Now, for instance, the Bataclan. Why did the Muslim community in Molenbeek hide those terrorists for months, not saying a word, because they would be showing the way to policemen and tyrants to commit injustice, because what those Muslims did was fully legal. And those policemen interrupting them, that would be considered a crime against Islam. But notice number two, teaching questions of sacred law to those learning it in bad faith, who do not want the knowledge to apply it in their lives. So Muslims, if they do know the Sharia, they're not allowed to teach it to anyone was learning it in bad faith. Uh, for instance, I'm not learning it to become a Muslim. I'm not learning it to become a better Muslim. I'm learning it to understand and critique Islam. I'm using it to delve into Islam. Therefore, I'm learning it in bad faith. And That's right. And, and for me also, not to speak about it. for me, Lloyd, I, I am an insider now who is sharing secrets. And so you and I uh, fit in the same category, meaning that we are exposing something that uh, others should not know about. And that actually falls under the laws of what's called ghibba which is the laws of tail-bearing. So you've got namima and ghibba, which is tail-bearing as, as well as, uh, forgive me, the word, uh, the word has just slipped my mind. Hopefully you can make an edit here. Um, the word for slander, my apologies. So us speaking about Islam literally falls under two categories, namima and ghibba, which is tail-bearing and slander. In Islam, so in Western law, if I lie about someone and I hurt their name and reputation, that is slander. In Islam, if you tell the truth about someone, that they do not like that is slander. And we can go into those laws another time. Yeah, so you're talking but about ghaiba and namima. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. And sharia is effectively secret. And for a Muslim to reveal it is effectively treason. Absolutely. Well, um, is there anything else you want to add just to this segment before we move on to the next segment? No, this is sufficient. And uh, hopefully this gives people an introduction as to why no one knows anything about Sharia, because they're not allowed to speak about the Sharia. That's if they know it. Absolutely. Um, excellent way to end. And uh, that's why uh, our viewers here, hopefully you find this show to be exciting. And I'm sure this teaser, at least in this introductory part, uh, would have uh, basically fulfilled that aspect of exciting you and getting you 
you to really tune in now to begin to watch this very long series. I mean, we don't know yet how long it will be, but we want to be also slow in sharing it, methodical in sharing it, because there is a lot of resources that we are going to offer. And by the way, you will find out that at least under one of these videos, the first one, we're going to give you a lot of links. Uh, Brother Lloyd is kind enough to share with us the resources, the references where you can go and see for yourself, of course. Uh, why? Because we want to affirm collaborate and show you that whatever we're sharing with you here does not come out of our own opinion. It's actually listed in Islamic sources and you have access to the same sources that we will be sharing with you. Brother, thank you so much as always. I can't wait until we do the second part, of course, and continue from there. Everyone else, thank you so much for watching. This is Al-Fadi, over and out. God bless. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al-Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Last time, we really gave a, just a brief introduction uh, to Sharia. In fact, I think we called it uh, Sharia sacred or secret. And today, we are going to continue with the same theme, at least for the most part. And with me here, of course, in our studio, virtually, our dear brother Lloyd de Jong, who I thought did an excellent job in bringing to the forefront uh, some aspects of Sharia and tying it to groups like ISIS, for instance, and some of the... Um, you know, terrorist attacks that took place, and basically to show that there is nothing, uh, you know, secret about Sharia when it comes to fulfilling its mandates and its requirements. The only secrecy is that those who follow uh, uh, the mandates of Sharia try to keep it that way out of fear of retaliation or exposing the actions to the authorities, or maybe they have other ulterior motives. Whatever the case might be, we will continue to methodically expose things to you from Islamic sources when it comes to Sharia. Uh, Brother Lloyd, thank you so much again for uh, joining me uh, to continue with our discussions on this topic, a very important topic, if I may add. Well, thank you for having me back, Alfani. Very honored. So where would you like to uh, start this time? I know we ended somewhere last time. I think that's the, uh, you're going to show us the slide where we finished, and then you want to carry on from there. Pick up where we left off, and I'll move forward. Yeah. So I showed that Muslims are not allowed to teach any of the sacred law of the Islamic law, the Sharia or the Fiqh, to non-Muslims. So, And also, if we want to learn it, we are learning it in bad faith. We're learning it to harm Islam, and therefore... They must not reveal this knowledge to us. Now, notice this is called the Maqasad al-Sharia, literally the aims or purposes of the law. Mm -hmm. Now, Islam is a legal system. It is also a political system. So, and what are the purposes of this system? Well, in legal theory, the idea that the Sharia is a system that encompasses aims or purposes, not merely a collection of inscrutable rulings. Notice the word inscrutable. This is something that is hidden, something that is not known. So it admits that the Sharia is meant to be a secret. It's meant to be unknown, inscrutable. But it has an aim. It has a purpose. So the Sharia short version is the ultimate distillation of the Quran, the Sunnah, call it the Hadith, the Tafsir. All of this knowledge, all of this body has been distilled into the Sharia. This is the final interpretation of all of the above. It's the application, the full exegesis of all of Islam's knowledge. It took about 900 years to finally create the Sharia. Wonderful. 
Wonderful. Right. So what we're going to be doing through the series is demystifying Sharia. We're going to clarify what Sharia is in relationship to the Quran and the Sunnah. We're going to show where it is found. We're going to detail its terminology and its rulings. We're going to define its role. We're going to identify Islam's major doctrines. We're going to move beyond verses in the Quran and hadiths. We're going to, these things created doctrine. This doctrine created laws. We're going to look at the doctrine, the major doctrines of Islam. There are certain fundamental doctrines. And then we're going to look at how those are expressed in law. We're going to address misconceptions. We're going to show Islam's divisions, levels, and authority structure. We will examine how, when, where, and why the Sharia was created. We're going to trace its historical and political development. That is, certainly it was developed with political aims in mind. We're going to also compare the Sharia versus the Talmud Bavli, or the Babylonian Talmud. We're going to see the plagiarism, and the, as well as the corruption of what is in the Talmud. Then we're going to look at, when I say corruption in the Talmud, they've taken the Talmud, they've plagiarized and inverted a number of its rulings. They've altered them. They've made them unrecognizable in many cases. We're going to look at its importance as the final product and the end goal of Islam, which is the will of Allah, which has to be imposed by persuasion, persuasion, read propaganda, or by force. Wonderful. Does this summarize at least the intent of this series? Uh, Is it fair to say that? Yes. Excellent. So people now have an idea about what this series will entail. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to, every point here will be one show. It could be multiple shows, but at least you you can follow with us right now as the viewers, the train of thoughts and the uh, systematic approach that we will be taking here. So thank you, brother, for providing this. Please continue. Very welcome. Right. So, so that everyone knows, these are some of the major sources that I'm using. I've listed this, the document called the Islamic and Talmudic Jurisprudence, the Four Roots of Islamic Law and Their Talmudic Counterparts by Judith R. Wegner. This is the link on the webs on, on their website, on the JSTOR website. However, all the links to every single document I'm using will be in the description. Every single item that I will be using here and showing here will be available for the audience to download, as we said. Was our Shafi the Master Architect of Islamic Jurisprudence by Wa'el B. Halak? Very good article. However, he is an apologist for Islam, so one has to bear that in mind. Reliance of the Traveler. This is the world's most popular Islamic law or sacred law manual, the Umdat al-Salik, the manual of sacred Islamic law. I will also reference, amongst others, the Hedaya. This we will get to later. It is a very important, very large, very complex Islamic law manual. A couple of additional sources. The Brill Encyclopedia of Islam, 13 volumes. This is the major academic resource on Islam. To buy this will cost you about $40,000. The Brill Encyclopedia of the Quran, six volumes. I've no idea what that costs. We will look at, amongst others, the Digest of Muhammadan Law. We look at the Ihya Ulama Din, the revival of the religious sciences by Muhammad al-Ghazali. And we will refer to other authoritative legal and academic sources as required. All links available below. Wonderful, brother. Thank now, you. Okay, so Quran 42.13. Allah has laid down for you the same deen, the way of life and belief. Now, Islam does not refer to itself as a religion. We in the West, we utilize that term. We as Christians utilize that term. However, Islam refers to itself as a deen, and we need to understand Islam as a deen, and we have to look at what is a deen. How is it different from religion? Well, it's a political system. But let's continue here. This is the same deen which Allah had commanded to Noah and which have enjoined on you and which we have bequeathed to Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, so that they should establish the religion and not be divided amongst themselves. Well, we do know there are distinct, vast 
differences, irreconcilable differences between Christianity and Islam. However, this is what they are taught. Now, according to the scholar Al-Shar'ani, it's the second time we've seen him. He was mentioned earlier. He was very critical in the development of Islam, one of the final scholars. He's, he's the guy that put the cherry on the cake, if you will. It is obligatory to act according to the Sharia of the Prophet and to abstain from that which was abrogated from the Sharia of Jesus. So we need to bear that in mind. So Islam sees that Christianity was a religion of law, which it is not, while Islam itself is a religion of law. Right. The caveat. Yes, Al-Fari? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you because you hear these arguments from Muslims is like always asking you, so, well, do you still follow the law or not? That's where they're coming from. The idea that Islam adheres to the law, you guys don't adhere to it anymore. Correct. And there's a difference. You know, the, we will discuss those. We get to those distinctions as we go. Now, a caveat. This is from Judith Wigner in this document, Islamic and Talmudic Jurisprudence. Severe limitations are imposed by the scarcity of early Islamic legal material and the complete lack of pre-Islamic Arabian legal texts. Research is further hampered by the probability that doctrinal consideration led to the expunging, the deletion, the erasure of any references to foreign sources from the early legal texts. That's why in the early slide I showed that Islam has borrowed over 2,000 words from other languages, especially Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, and Greek. And as we go through the Sharia, we will find out that, yes, those ideas have been incorporated from those cultures or legal systems, and they've erased the originals. They've erased the sources they got them from. So from Arab legal culture to the Talmud. So Islamic law developed beyond region-specific Arab customary laws in the 8th and the 9th centuries with the jurisprudential bases of the Babylonian Talmud. What this means is that in each little region, you had these different cultures all involved in Islam. They all had their own little specific laws and customs. And unfortunately, for political purposes, to build a state, to build a nation, the Ummah, and we will learn more about how they had this perfect state that they had envisioned, they needed to have the same set of ideas across all of them to avoid contradiction because there was contradiction. Things were being noticed. Jewish and Islamic law are theocratic legal systems resting on the concept of a divine law revealed to a prophet in a scripture. For Jews, that is the Torah. For Muslims, the Quran. Rabbinic law developed during the first five centuries AD, culminating in the editing of the Talmud in the sixth century. It distinguishes civil, moral, and ceremonial law. Now, Jewish law has evolved. It has changed morally. And of course, if you look at Israel today, modern Israel, it does not apply Talmudic law the way it was then. It doesn't, doesn't even apply the law of the Torah, except for perhaps civil and, sorry, ceremonial and moral law. Christianity has a moral law, but Islam, in many ways, does not distinguish whatsoever between civil, moral, and ceremonial law. Islamic law initially developed during the 7th to 9th centuries, culminating in the classical theory of Islamic jurisprudence. It does not separate mosque and state. However, it only finished full development in the 14th century or later. We'll see in fact, it probably goes to the 16th century, to the 1500s, when it was finished. There are strong Talmudic parallels, and you can even say plagiarism, with the legal theory of Imam Shafi. Imam Shafi is the one most critical for crafting how Sharia developed as a legal system, as a political system, with a borrowing of fundamental con concepts from the Talmud Bavli. And also, given the relative scarcity of legal provisions in the Quran, which Shafi will tell us in a moment, and the Quran was not intended to be a comprehensive law code. This was inevitable that they needed to develop a comprehensive legal and political code. Right. And, and by the way, the, 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 the use of the Babylonian Talmud as an example is excellent here and brilliant because that's what the Jews did. And uh, while they were in exile, they started at this body of rulings because guess what? They were not in Jerusalem anymore. The temple has been destroyed and they have to come up with different ways to interpret, uh, you know, certain actions and rituals. So that you can see the similarities now and the correlation between the two. 
Yes, yes. I'll end on this slide on this one. If that's so, we're looking at the Mujtahid Mutlak Shafi. This word is very important. This one's highlighted Mujtahid Mutlak. We will get into all of these definitions. Imam Shafi said the Quran texts are couched in very general terms, which it is the function of the Sunnah to expand and elucidate to make Allah's meaning absolutely clear. Certainly, but then beyond the Sunnah, we then move to the Sharia. So, and the Fiqh. Wonderful. So, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so, basically, the Quran is not complete on its own. And Imam Shafi confirms this for us. He required, in fact, he was the one that made the Sunnah a requisite source to interpret the Quran. Absolutely. And this is very damaging, by the way, when you think about it, uh, technically speaking, that uh, it, right there you have a very well-known, prominent uh, Islamic clerk uh, who is telling you the Quran, uh, if it stands on its own, it's definitely not sufficient. Uh, so you're going to need other bodies of sacred writings, in this case, or sayings, uh, or rulings, if I may add, uh, to interpret it for you and to allow you to have a fuller picture that is sufficient for a society. Yes. What should we expect next time? Next time I will show, I will start showing the application of some of the laws. So I'm not going to separate it. I will be showing, next time I will show the application of some of these laws, how from the Quran into the Sunnah, into the Sharia, and how this created doctrine and law. And we will see how this affects Islamic behavior, the behavior of Muslims. We will see how it changes their, their dealings with others. And you will start to see how this actually filters back into the real world. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, this is Al-Fadi. And if you tuned in uh, to watch this, this is our uh, massive, hopefully, uh, video series on Sharia, a Muslim Talmud. Uh, if you're enjoying this, uh, please share it with others and feel free to also interact with us in the comment section. Thank you, brother. Thank you, everyone. This is Al-Fadi. God bless you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.